This is the Christian Life Center podcast. Here at CLC, we are messengers of hope, where we believe in taking God's message of hope everywhere we go to everyone we meet. From wherever you are, be encouraged by this week's message. But it's so good to have you with us today as we uh, just dive into the word of the Lord. I've got a, a powerful message. I believe that God has laid on my heart for you today, and I just want to release it to you. So take your Bibles, uh, take your devices, and turn over with me to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. That's where we're going to begin today. Now, we've been in a series called Dear Church, and we've been looking at these letters, these letters that were sent to the churches in Asia Minor. If you remember, we started in Ephesus, and in Ephesus, we said that it was the apostolic church. This was a church that uh, was one that was running after God. They were doing great things for God, but God says, I have this one thing against you. And the one thing was that they had left their first love, that they were no longer devoted to Christ like they once were. Then we moved on to the church of Smyrna. And in Smyrna, we see that it was a church that was under great persecution. There was a time of oppression and persecution and the believers' possessions were taken away and they were being turned in and imprisoned and martyred for their faith. And so we looked at that week, what does it look like in life's darkest hour? How do you endure, patience? endure in the darkest hours of life. Then we moved on to Pergamos. And in Pergamos, we saw a church that was living literally in the enemy's territory. And it illustrates what happens when we're in the midst of the enemy's territory and the wickedness and the evil that's all around and the values of the world. It's so easy to give in to compromise. And we've got to hold on strong. And so that week, we looked at the church of Pergamos. And then we looked at the church of Thyatira. As we looked at this church, we saw a church that was a worldly church. It was a church that was stagnant, compromising. It was a church that was allowing uh, many false doctrines and things to come in to the church. And then we moved over to the church of Sardis, which literally did represent a church that was stagnant. This was a stagnant church, and and, uh, we began to unpack those principles uh, of what it meant to be a stagnant church. Last week, Pastor Stephen did a phenomenal job speaking to us about the open doors, the church of Philadelphia, the open doors. And that takes us today to the church of Laodicea. Now, this is probably the church that's talked about the most in Christian circles and among the, 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 the church is um, the church of Laodicea. And that takes us to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Revelation 3, verse 14, if you will, turn with me over there. It says, to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you, spew you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me, buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest, zealous, and repent. Here am I. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, thank you for your word. Today as we open it, it's anointed. We know that it's powerful. There's illumination that comes as we open the word and I pray for that right now. Illuminate, awaken. Father, I pray that you will touch our hearts, our spirits. Today, oh God, let us be challenged. Let us be convicted. Let us be inspired to be what you've called us to be and to do what you've called us to do. I pray that over the body of Christ today in your name. Amen and amen and amen. Today we're gonna look at this. We're gonna unpack the church of Laodicea. Now before I unpack the church and I begin to look at this that's said here, we've gotta look at Laodicea, the city, and then we're gonna begin to look at what Jesus says to the church because you can't understand this letter if you don't understand the city. You don't understand the geography and the history. And I think you're gonna find it very enlightening lightning today. No matter how many times you've heard this passage preached, the historical revelation that I'm going to share with you today illuminates the truth of this passage. So, Laodicea, the city. There's a couple things that we want to look at in Laodicea, the city. Some primary traits. One of the traits about the city was it was a city that was very, very wealthy. It had great wealth. If you're taking notes, write that down. It was a city that was very, very wealthy. In fact, history tells us that Laodicea, uh, Laodicea, I'm struggling to say that, Laodicea had, uh, at that time, it was probably one of the most wealthiest cities in this entire region. It was very wealthy, very uh, prosperous, and it had three major highways that would run through the city, which enabled it to have even more uh, of, of wealth and enormous wealth that was there. It was the center of three key things that you need to know because it comes up in our passage. It was the key for the financial banking center of that whole region. It was also the center of a clothing manufacturing. In fact, it had 4,500 shops that it would be uh, there in the four huge markets of this area. And so it was a financial center. It was a manufacturing center. But thirdly, it was a famous medical city. It had famous medical school that actually was a medical center that focused on uh, an eye uh, solve that would help to uh, help to, to clear up the eyes and see a lot better. And so because of their great wealth, the city of Laodicea was a very self-sufficient city. 
They had everything they needed, everything that they want, the wealth and all of the things that was there. I mentioned they had over 4,500 shops in four huge markets, which was humongous in this day and in this time. It was a, a city that was very rich in the arts. It had two theaters. Uh, it had the medical school that I talked about. It had a huge Coliseum Stadium with seats 60,000 people. It was a thriving uh, textile uh, uh, city and the industry that was there. It served as the banking region of the entire uh, area. So you can see that this was a city that had a lot of wealth. And because of that, it was a very self-sufficient city. But it had one problem. And that's the key to understanding this passage of scripture, especially the one that you've probably heard the most quoted. And that is the city had an issue with not having enough water. It only had a little brook that would come in and it was not enough water to, to, to meet the needs of that entire city and all that was there. And so to overcome the challenge of a lack of water, the people decided to do something and that was they were going to construct a system and it was the first of its kind. If you've ever gone with us to Israel, you will see this system which is called the Aqueducts. Well, the first aqueduct was built in this region and in this area, and it would transport the water into the city. Now, you've got to understand that there was two water sources for Laodicea. You had the city of Colossae, which was about nine miles to the southeast of Laodicea. Now, in Colossae, it was known for its cold, freezing water. When the snow from the mountaintops would begin to melt, it would begin to fill into the streams and the tributaries, and it would be this cold, refreshing water. So it was a very popular resort destination that in the summer months, in the heat of Asia, in Turkey there of today, in the heat of, of, the, of the summer, the tourists would come to the cold waters to be revitalized and, 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 and to be refreshed in those icy cold waters. That's in the southeast. We had these cold waters down in Colossae. But then to the north of the city, about six miles north of Laodicea, is the ancient city of, uh, uh, I can hardly say it, but high, uh, high, uh, I can't hardly say it, Hypolis, Hypolis uh, was the city. And this was very famous for its hot springs. Now, hot springs are very popular in, in Europe and Asia. In fact, they're believed to bring refreshing and renewing to the body, have healing virtual, uh, virtue to the body. And these hot springs, these hot springs would be a very popular tourist destination in the, in the heat of the summer. So in the heat of the, I mean, in the winter, in the heat of the winter. So in the heat of the winter, they would go to the city to the north to get the warm waters of the, the, the springs in the winter. And in the summer, they would go to the south down into the cold, icy waters in Colossae. Well, what the people of Laodicea decided to do with their wealth, they were going to build these aqueducts. And as they begin to build the aqueducts, it was a way to transport the cold water from the south into Laodicea and the warm water from the north into Laodicea. 
took several years to do the project. And as they were building these aqueducts, the day came that they finally opened it up and the water would come in to Laodicea. But as people waited for this day, they waited for the moment when the water would come. By the time the water got to Laodicea from the south and from the north, it was no longer cold. It was no longer that, 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 that refreshing cold water that was coming from the south or the warm hot waters from the springs, but it was lukewarm. Now, the problem with the water was not just that it was lukewarm. It was even worse than that. Traveling miles, six miles, nine miles, traveling miles to get to Laodicea, the water going through those clay pots began to pick up a taste. It began to pick up the minerals of the pipes, and it was a it was a it was a a putrid smell that was there. And so, when uh, it was almost as something was decaying and rotting and emitting the smell, maybe you've been around sulfur water or 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 well water that has that kind of feeling to it. It was even worse. Worse than that, it was unpleasant, it was repulsive, and, and it said that as they went to drink the water, it was so raunchy in a sense that they spit it out of their mouths, they spewed it out of their mouths because the taste was so disgusting. Now, with that historical context, let me read to you one more time this passage in Revelation 3 and verse 15. Let me read it to you one more time. And now in this context, you can maybe understand this a little bit more. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You see, that moment when Jesus would have been declaring this revelation and the church of Laodicea would have been reading that, at that moment, they would have understood that illustration better than anything else that could have been said. So that's the city of Laodicea. Now let's go down to the church of Laodicea and see what he is saying to the church. You see, he's saying, I wish you were hot or cold. It's not that Jesus was saying, I, I wish that you were unsaved, that you weren't on fire for me. That's not what he's saying. He is using an illustration that there's the warm water from the north, the cold water from the south, but by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And because it was lukewarm, it picked up all of the minerals, everything that came. It was something that was distasteful in the mouth of those that would taste it. And so what he was saying is that your lukewarmness is your indifference. If you're taking notes, the trait for the church was that they were indifferent, that they were a church that was complacent, complacent. They were lethargic. They were self-satisfied. They were half-hearted. They, they were neutral where they were. You see, Laodicea had lost its spiritual value. This was an illustration, I want you to hear me, that they would have understood. Cold had value, hot had value, but you are no use to me. You're indifferent, you're complacent, you're half-hearted, you're neutral, you're no value, and it makes me sick, he was saying, to my stomach. Now let's take a moment, let's just think about that. I don't wanna rush past this because, you see, often we hear this passage to unbelievers, but today, well, I want you to remember, he's writing to the church. 
to the church, to the believers, to those that were in Laodicea. At one time, they're a thriving church. They're a prosperous church. And now he's saying, you're indifferent. You're half-hearted. You're neutral. You're complacent. Let's take a moment and talk about that. Let's, let's get practical for a moment. What does it mean to be half-committed, half-hearted, neutral, indifferent? Well, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, when it comes to walking with Christ and being what Christ wants us to be, Jesus says very clearly in Scripture, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to walk with me, you're going to be my child, you're going to be written in my Lamb's book of life, if you are going to be with me for all of eternity, then you've got to pick up your cross and you've got to follow me. Can I just get an amen in the chat box for a moment? you got to pick up your cross and you've got to follow me. But boy, when we're half-hearted, half-committed, we've been studying these churches, we see we get complacent, we fall into rituals, we begin to pick up traditions. And boy, all through the New Testament, it says when you are in Christ, let me say it another way to you, when you're a fully devoted follower of Christ, when you are in Christ, I'm telling you, it challenges within us the core of complacency because all of a sudden we know that we're serving a risen Lord and Savior and we have come to experience his love and his grace. And if you've ever experienced the Lord like that, you know what I'm talking about. There's a fire that's in you. There's a passion within you. There's a, a pursuit to know Christ, to walk with Christ, to, to experience Christ, to be changed into the image of Christ, to grow Man, I come to know that he loves me and my greatest passion and desire is to learn to love him in return. One of my favorite scriptures that I quote over and over again is Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the image or the pattern or the values of this world. You see, if I'm half committed, Scripture shows me I start falling in love with this world. I'm starting to allow myself to get squeezed into the mold of this world. When I am sold out, fully devoted follower of Christ, when I am hot or cold, value to him, when I am in that place, all of a sudden, there is something in me that says, God, I surrender all to you. Yeah, in fact, by the way, that's what worship is. Worship is experiencing God, yielding to God. It's more than a song that we sing. It's more than a service that we come to, but it's a yielding, a surrendering. That's what it means to trust him. You yield, you surrender, you lay it down. You determine that you're gonna love him and worship him and glorify him. That's what it means to be in Christ and to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. What does it mean to be half committed? Well, to be half committed means that I'm a hearer of the word. I'm not a doer of the word. And I'm burdened by this. I believe there's too many that hear the word week after week after week, and we're not applying it to our lives. See, the problem is for many of you watching me right now, many of you right now, the truth is for you and me, we know more of the word than we apply in our life. But we keep hearing, we keep listening, we keep getting more, and yay, man, and, and that's good. But the reality is there's got to be something that moves my will and says, God, help me do your work. 
You see, when you're committed, when you're in Christ, when you're fully devoted like that, there is something that says, God, in every message, in every sermon, in every devotion, anything that proclaims the name of Jesus, there is something there that's going to challenge me, convict me, inspire me, and move me to be what you want me to be. You see, half committed, I hear it, but I don't apply it. I listen to it, and then I turn it off, and I forget. In fact, Scripture says you look in the mirror, and you forget what you look like. No, when the word of God is penetrating, man, there is a power, there's a transformational power and it penetrates and it cuts you and I. It's the word and it's a good work because it's forming us into the image of Christ. Let me just pause for a moment and can I just get an amen? Just say amen with me. That's what God does in our hearts. Well, they were indifferent. I could go on because the time I wanna get to my chairs that are behind me here. They were indifferent, but a second trait was that they were self-deceived. They were self-deceived. Write it down, if you will. Look with me here at this verse, again in verse 17. He says, you say, they were self-deceived. There was a self-deception. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing but you do not realize, they're self-deceived. You do not realize that you are wretched, that you're pitiful. Remember, he's not talking to those that are outside the church. He's talking to those that are in the church. And boy, I don't know about you, but this is convicting to me because it makes me stop and it makes me say, God, if there's anything in me that makes me like this in your sight, then God, I want it purified. I want to be cleansed in your eyes because he says, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You say, I am. You see, what they were saying is, I am rich. You see, what their problem was in their deception was that they were relying on themselves. They were self-focused, self-centered, self-absorbed. And boy, I'm telling you, when I was preparing this over the last few weeks, doesn't this sound like today? We're depending on our riches. We're depending on our programs. We're depending on so many other things. You say, I am rich. I am. You see, the problem for the Laodiceans was that they were the center of their own world. They had an exaggerated opinion of themselves. Their pride. Their pride blinded them to the goodness of God. They became the center of their own world and their self-centeredness, it caused them to be independent, self-reliant, and they forgot God. So God says, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're indifferent, you're deceived, you have this callous condition, and because of it, it has made you poor. Now remember Laodicea? Remember one of the things about the city was it was a city of great wealth. But what is he saying to them? Is you say you're rich, but no, 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 no. You're wretched, you're pitiful, you are poor. He says, you are blind. Remember, this was the center of a medical famous eye school here. And, and, and at this time, he says, you're blind. You're blind, and not only that, you're naked. All the things that they would have known was the strength of their city. He was saying to them, you are self-deceived. You think one thing, but in reality, I'm pulling back the curtain and I'm beginning to show you what you really like. And so he goes on to say in verse 18, if you'll look again, I, I, I counsel you 
to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. What he's saying is you need something that can't be bought in the marketplace or in the shops. You need a gold that will come from me and it's purified and it's refined and white clothes to wear so that it will cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see again. He said, I wanna help you see. I want you not to be disgraced and dishonored because you're naked. I want you to put on a dazzling robe of righteousness that is made available for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I think, man, how could this happen? How could they get to this place? And so today, for the rest of the sermon, I want to help you to understand. I want you to understand, and I want to use an illustration of three chairs today. First, I want to explain each chair. Each chair represents a condition, a place within our life, a place that easily we can find ourselves in if we're not careful. And then in the final moments of the message today, I want to give you a biblical illustration. So in chair number one, chair number one represents a commitment. Chair number one is a commitment. Now, what do you mean by a commitment? Well, a commitment is when I've come to Christ. I give my life to Christ. I surrender my life to the Lord and I receive him as my Lord and my Savior. I become spiritually alive. I'm committed to Christ. Man, I don't know about you. When I first gave my life to the Lord, I was on fire for God. Now, I grew up around the church. And the problem for me is I grew up around the church. That was my problem. I knew what should happen. I knew when it should happen. I mean, I had it timed. I knew what time I was getting out. I knew how many light bulbs were in the building. I knew what was burned out. I mean, I knew everything that was going on. But boy, one day God came in and he encountered my life. And when he encountered me, you see, you gotta have your personal encounter. You gotta have a personal time where God uh, comes and he, he intersects your life and you encounter him and you begin to realize that in your sin, you are doomed if you don't give your life to Christ. Well, that happened to me. I was a young teenager. Even though I'd been in the church a, a long time, I came to a place that I made a personal commitment where I became sensitive to the Lord and more aware of him and his presence where there was a conviction what is conviction? Where I, where I begin to get convicted, the Holy Spirit began to burden me about things that I used to do and I kept doing. And all of a sudden I began to realize that's not the way I should be now that I'm with Christ. I gotta leave that old stuff behind. I gotta make a break. I gotta turn from Egypt and turn to God. And there was a conviction that began to grow in my heart because there was a desire for God and the will of God and the heart of God and the walk with God. And you see, when you're committed, there's a longing. You're crying, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Anoint me, fill me, touch me. Let me touch the hem of your garment because there the virtue of God is released. You see, when you're living in commitment, it's about today. It's not about yesterday. It's about today. How do I honor you today? That was the problem in the church of Ephesus, wasn't it? They had left their first Love. They were committed at one time, but they left their first love. In fact, in Ephesians chapter one, it says 14 times. And in fact, in six chapters all through there, it talks about this love, this love for God. The second chair, the first chair is commitment. The second chair I wanna to talk to you about today 
is compromise. Compromise is when we get stagnant, lukewarm, half committed. You see, we, 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 we get into the second chair here, and when we get to the second chair, now we're not as sensitive to the Lord as we once were. We don't quite pursue him like we once did. We don't open the word and pray and study like we once did. Oh, we're not passionately waiting to get the church to worship with the people of God. And, and man, I couldn't wait to have, to have the word of God preached and I could write down and I could study. You see, when you get to this chair, yeah, I've read that chapter before. It doesn't quite mean as much. We become, when we get in this chair, we become historians about what God is doing and how God used to do it. And we talk about the good old days when we're sitting in this chair. In this chair, we begin to take on traditions and rituals and things like we've always done. And we lose a fire. We lose a, a passion. In fact, Paul said to young Timothy, it becomes a form of godliness. We take on a form of godliness and we lose the power, the same power that rose Christ from the grave is available to us when we stay committed to him. But when I slide over into the chair of compromise, it's all about yesterday and I'm not walking in the power that's available to me today. See, in Revelation chapter two, we talked about the church of compromise. The church of compromise was sitting right here in chair number two. Laodicea is sitting right here. Lukewarm is a chair of compromise. The third chair is the chair of the chair of what I'm calling just to stay with C's here. You see how I did that? Commitment, compromise. Come on, come on. Give me a little, you know, thumbs up there, high five, some spiritual conflict. You see, in spiritual conflict, I'm I'm away from God. I'm cold. I, I'm not walking with God. I don't hear him. I, I don't I don't I don't pursue him. Maybe I've never made a commitment to him. Maybe I've never understood the plan of salvation. I, I've never really heard the gospel message presented. That's why Pastor Stephen's message last week spurs me, spurs us on to say, God, let us be witnesses. What was it, eight out of 10 that are waiting? Eight out of 10 that are spiritually conflicted? They don't have a relationship with God. They're waiting for someone to share it with them. And yet only 40%, four out of 10 Christians are actively sharing their faith. You see, there are so many that are spiritually conflicted in their life. They don't have conviction. They don't, they, they don't understand their purpose. There's no zeal. They don't understand what it really means to live for God. They're conflicted. They're conflicted. They, they might have been around church. They might, they might have driven past hundreds of churches, but they don't have a power that's moving in their life. You see, these three chairs are a powerful illustration of what God is saying to you and I is that there's the chair of commitment, compromise, and spiritual conflict. The question is, which chair are we in today? Not where we should be and not where we were, but where are we today? In the final moments here, and I wanna end with a final illustration, I wanna get practical, and I just wanna answer the question with two simple responses, and that is, how do I keep myself in the right chair? How do I stay in the right chair where God would want me to be? Well, first of all, I want you to write it down. I believe it starts by never stopping, never stop examining where you're at. Don't stop asking yourself, which chair am I in? What's happening in my life? Never stop examining yourself. Let's be honest. 
Let's be honest to ourselves about what chair we're sitting in. Not where I was, not where I should be, but where am I? I mean, if you go back to our passage of scripture, in our passage of scripture, in verse 19, in verse 19, we read earlier, and I wanna read it to you again. And in verse 19, he says, those I love, I what? I rebuke and I discipline. Therefore, be earnest, be earnest, repent. In fact, that word earnest caught my attention as I began to study it. The NIV says earnest. But other translations use the word zealous. Be zealous, be eager to do something, to achieve something, be deeply committed to it. So he says, do what? Be zealous, be eager to do what? To repent. If you have found that you're not in the chair of commitment, be zealous, be eager to repent. Pastor Nadine set us up a number of weeks ago as we were coming into this of what repentance is. And that is I make a, I make a, a determination, a, a behavioral change in my thinking, in my attitude, in my behavior, and in my living, that there is a change that I'm going to make to get back to where I need to be. I love the word. Be earnest, be zealous. Zealous to do what? I mean, usually... We're talking about zealous and, and building the kingdom and advancing the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying here, be zealous to repent if you're not in the chair of commitment. So how does this happen? Well, let me share with you biblically in our final moments how this can happen. If I can take you back to the Old Testament, I want to talk to you about the life of David. David sat in the chair of commitment. He sat in the first chair. As the deer, he wrote, pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, oh God. That's David. David shows us that there is a desire to be close to God. David's the one that says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, oh Lord. And he prayed that right after he had had a major failure in his adultery with Bathsheba. When he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he'll come to a place of repentance and he's getting back to the chair. He says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, oh God. What was he saying is God, I drifted from this chair and I gotta get back there. You see, that's the reality of what God wants for you and I. You see, when you first come to the Lord, let's be honest, you don't have all your doctrine together. You don't have it all together. You don't have all the answers. New believers can say sometimes some of the craziest things because theologically they don't have it all together. But I'll tell you what they do have. What I had and what you had when you first came to Christ is there was such a realness of who Christ was, who he is, that he was there, he was with you. You sensed it, you knew it, it was there. Man, you open up the word and he spoke to you. Revelation would come to you. That's what happens. You see, chair one is about your priorities being in the right place. And David, though he stumbled, though he fell, though he had struggles within his life, David would always get back to the, to the place of priority. And that was making God the priority of his life. But then you go from David to David's son, Solomon. If you know anything about scripture, Solomon set in the second chair. Solomon sat in the chair of pleasure. See, Solomon was driven with a selfishness. 
He was driven with a godless independence. It drove his life. Oh, daddy walked with God, and that was good for daddy. But he sat in the chair of compromise. He was driven with materialistic things, material wealth and possessions. He was driven by the things of this world, a love for the things of this world. And he would rationalize it. Lust, sexuality, pleasure of sin, the pleasures of the flesh. That that drove his life. And let me tell you, when you sit in the chair of compromise, if you allow yourself to move into that chair, can I tell you, it begins to choke the word of God out of your life. It quenches the spirit. It quenches the voice and the convictions of the Holy Spirit. And before long, you're going to begin to feel a spiritual death that begins to come in. The Bible says sin is fun for a season, only for a season. You see, we got to be careful that we don't turn godliness into godlessness. But there is a desire to walk with him. Solomon's materialism. I mean, if you look in Ecclesiastes, he uses the word I 46 times. It was selfishness, compromise, pleasure. I want to feel good. That was Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, sat in the chair of spiritual conflict. You see, he was perplexed about life. He was, he was perplexed about God. You see, he saw granddaddy walk with God. He saw granddaddy have an experience with God. But daddy talked about God, but didn't live for God. He lived for himself. And what that did for Rehoboam is it made him perplexed. He was confused. He heard one thing and he saw a different thing and he was confused. Now, parents, I want you to hear me right now. The reality is this. We can say God is number one in our life, but if it doesn't show in our life, then our children will know it and see it. Oh, God is important. He's number one but they don't see us opening our Bibles. They don't see us doing devotions. They don't see us hardly ever going to church. Statistics say now, not just during COVID, but supposedly committed Christians are going to church once in four weeks. And now we're hearing it's once in six weeks that they're tuning in and watching. So I'm glad you're with me today. I'll see you back at Christmas time is kind of what happens, right? One in six weeks you see, we say one thing and something else begins to happen. Parents, I'm going to tell you right now, it's hard raising our children. It's hard helping our children. One of the number one things, especially as they became teenagers and now my children are young adult, is to help them understand if you sit in these chairs, that's what it represents. This is what it means. This is what's going to happen and keep guiding them how to get back into the chair of commitment. Do they see me honoring God with my tithe? I tell my children, this is how much I've tied. This is what we do. I, I let them know so they know it's important. When they get a paycheck, have you tithed? Have you given to God? God will honor you when you give, when you release it. I want them to know it. I want to share it with them. You see, I've got to keep leading them, no matter how old they are, back to this chair of commitment. What I've watched as a pastor now for many, 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 many years what I've watched is whatever chair you're sitting in, if you're sitting in the chair of compromise, usually, until your children have their own experience with God, they're gonna sit in the chair next to you. 
I've watched it over and over and over again. So if I'm sitting in this chair, my children, until they have their own encounter with God, they're more than likely going to be over in compromise. Why do I get my children to camps and revivals? Why did I drive when we were in Europe? We would drive hours and hours and hours in the summer to take them to go to a youth camp and we would go and sit in a hotel while they were at youth camp because there wasn't youth camps for them. Why? It's because they needed their own encounter with God. They needed a fresh experience with the Lord. So if I'm sitting in the chair of compromise, they're gonna be spiritually conflicted. The second thing I see out of the scripture and I wrap up with this, it's probably the passage that we hear the most is Jesus says, behold, Look at me, I'm at the door. Behold, I stand at the door and I what? I knock, that's right, I knock. Now, man, that's usually all we hear when we hear about this passage in Laodicea. You're lukewarm, you've lost your love, but today I hope that this has just opened your eyes to a revelation. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Who's he talking to again? He's talking to the church. He's talking to those that have slid from commitment into compromise or even into spiritual conflict. And he's saying, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If, it's a conditional promise, if you hear my, if you hear my call, if you hear my voice, and open the door, invite me in. If you recognize like David that God, I've slid from this chair. I've repented, Lord. I'm not where I need to be. I open the door and I invite you back in. I will come in and I will sit with you and I will sup with you. I'll supper with you. I have an intimate relationship. I'm knocking. I'm waiting. I'm there. Are you going to open up the door and let me in? Now that's a word for us as the church. But obviously, if you are in a place where spiritually you've never experienced the mercy and the love of God in your life, and you're listening to me right now, today, I'm telling you, God wants you. And the beautiful thing is you can jump from this chair all the way over to the chair of commitment. You can get all the way over here with a simple prayer of saying, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Forgive me, Lord. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Take my sin away. Forgive me, God, I pray. And as soon as you pray that prayer, I'm telling you, God comes in. And he says in 1 John 1, 9, he comes in and he wipes your sins away. He removes your sin. The Bible says he casts it as far as the east is from the west. That's a long way. That's how far. God casts it. He remembers it no more. And his grace and his mercy in the moment that you ask him to forgive you, His grace and his mercy comes in and he forgives you of your sin. See, what does does Jesus desire? He desires to be worshiped. He desires to be loved. He desires to be adorned. He desires to make a throne on our heart and come and sit on that throne. Here's the thing. I stand at the door and I knock. He's not gonna force himself in. He's not gonna force you to move in the chair. You see, the handle is on the inside. You gotta open the door and you gotta invite them in. See, no one gets saved against their will. No one moves in a chair against their will. No one receives the Holy Spirit against their will. No one moves in their standing with God against their will. 
Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Will you open and let me come in? If this ministry is making an impact in your life, why not help us make an impact on the lives of others by partnering with us today? You can give through our CLC app or at clcftl.org forward slash give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe for more inspiring messages like this. Now go and be messengers of hope.